Father, we come to you and we approach your mighty and glorious throne because of what Jesus did on the cross, pouring out his own life and his own blood and receiving your wrath for our sins. And God, we accept the cleansing that that provides for us. We accept the adoption that has been offered to us. We approach your throne as our Father and as your children coming to you, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask, Lord, that your word would be a sharp sword in our hearts that pierces and, and divides the good from the evil, God, that you would impart to us the grace of your Holy Spirit. You would change us, Lord, from the inside out like we sang just now. Lord God, that we would love you, that we wouldn't look at, at a relationship with you like the Ten Commandments or like the law that's on an external rock or stone, God, but it would be an internal working of your spirit inside us that loves you. I pray we wouldn't be trying to get a love for you that's from the outside in, but God, that wells up inside us like the emotions that rise when we when we watch a, a, a movie that makes us, you know, feel those strong emotions. Lord, we want to have an experience of love with you. But Lord, our, our life and our faith is not based on experience. It is based on your word. And as we study your word, I pray it would become real to us. And it would become powerful in our lives. And God, we, we desire um, all that you would give your children. Lord, your heart overflows with passion for us. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us, God, to see wondrous things from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, today's Bible study is called A Three-Hour Tour. And if you get that, raise your hand. Okay, so there's a few people that don't get it. I was talking to someone last night, and he's like, what are you talking about? What's a three-hour tour? So who's not seen Gilligan's Island? All right, Gilligan's Island, you know, obviously they left on a three-hour tour. Okay, so, but they didn't get back in three hours, of course, right? It took, um, I don't know, how long was it? Did they ever get off the island? I didn't watch the show, honestly. Did they get off? Years later. So they were on, and there was the captain and the scientist guy. And, okay, I didn't see the show, so I saw like one episode when I was like eight, but I'm young, what can I say? All right, so... Gilligan's Island, but it made me think of it. I thought it was great. So one small detail that might open our eyes to what we've been studying to maybe uh, uh, understand what Noah was going through, okay? We've been talking about Noah. He's gotten on the ark. That's where we left off last week is he got on the ark. The floods of God's judgment came, and he is now on the ark. But one thing that might open our eyes is that God never told Noah how long he was going to be on the boat, for all he knew, he could have just been, this could have just been a run-of-the-mill flooding. You know, three hours and you're done. Wipe everyone out, drown them, and you're done. But uh, it wasn't. This is a very long-term flood. In fact, we find out he is on the boat for 370 days. Five days longer than a year. A whole entire year, he is stuck on this boat with just his wife and his three sons and their wives, and a whole bunch of stinky animals. Uh, it's not this flash flood. Like, we, we took our boys to the um, aquarium, and they had this exhibit where they, you're in the desert, and they, they show you how a flash flood happens. And I, it was interesting that we were there this week because it comes in, and you hear the thunder, and then all of a sudden you're in this canyon, and the water rushes in, and it's right in front of you, and it's kind of scary. You know, I can just imagine um, uh, the fear that, the world was experiencing, you know, as this flood happened. Um, but it wasn't a quick flood like that. It was, it was a long flood. And each morning, Noah woke up with the hope of a change. He didn't want to be on that boat forever. I'm sure that that was not his, his idea of a comfortable life. He just wanted to see some land. Each day, I'm sure his kids were asking that infamous question, are we there yet? And he's like, I don't even know where we're going. And they're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And each day his wife would give him those eyes like, look what you've got us into. You're sleeping with the woolly mammoths tonight. But Noah was prepared for this. 
He was prepared for this because he walked with God, we saw. Before this flood, for 600 years, he came from a godly lineage, that lineage of Seth that was walking with God. They didn't care about what the world had to offer, like Cain's line that we saw. Cain's line was all about the world and what they were giving, what they were offering. But Seth's line, they cared about their relationship with God. They drew their identity from just God. That's all we're about is God. And Noah, he, he had walked with God for a great part of his 600 years, and he knew that God was there. He knew that God had a plan. He knew that God had saved them. But he probably didn't know how to answer his family's questions. Maybe even his own questions. It's so crazy and frustrating how people can sometimes just trust God. You try to ask them questions, and they're like, I don't know, but I still love God. Maybe they're going through a difficult situation in their life, and they just have this peace that passes understanding, which means it's weird. And and you come up to them, or maybe their family comes up to them, and it's like, why are you okay right now? Your life is literally falling apart, flooding all around. How can you be okay? And they're just like, you know what? I just believe. They never seem rattled. They never sway. They just believe that God loves them, and especially he will take care of them because he has a special plan for them. He really cares for them. I want to be one of those people. I want to be like, like I think Noah was, a simple, consistent witness of God's love. You know, maybe he didn't know how to answer his wife's questions. And maybe she got upset sometimes and he says, honey, I just love you. It's okay. God's there. Well, how do you know that? I believe. He spoke to me and I trust him. I just believe. I want to be that type of guy. You know, this is actually what God offers to you and me today. A simple, radical, stress-free life. The life of a blessed, privileged, anointed heir to the throne of God. If you think about a prince or princess of a mighty king, what do they have to worry about? In their life, the most crazy thing that they have to deal with is like, what they're going to wear that day, perhaps. And that's what he offers to us. We have obtained an adoption by the king of the universe. Maybe the only thing they have to worry about is telling bad jokes. Like, which animal on Noah's Ark had the highest level of intelligence? The giraffe. Hey, good job. Uh, what kind of lights were on the ark? Floodlights. <laughs> what animal did Noah just have a really hard time trusting? The cheetah. So with those awesome jokes setting the stage for us, let's read chapter, chapter 8. Well, let's get started here. It says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. It says God remembered Noah. Did God forget Noah? No, he did not. This is what... Theologians call an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is a term we use for when we attach or assign a human attribute to God. Does God have hands? No. But all the time we pray, touch me, God, with your hands. I want to feel your hands. Does God have wings? No. But we, he says in Psalms, cover me with your wings. Does he have a mouth? No. Does he have a beard? Yes. But that's besides the point. We don't know what he looks like because he's invisible. He's a spirit. He's a spirit. So, but these anthropomorphisms, why are they there? Because they help us to understand him, which is the Bible. The Bible is there so we can understand God. It's not meant to confuse you. It's not there as a trick that God is playing on you here if you think about me this way, but I'm going to trick you with the Bible. No, God wants you to understand him. And that's why the simplest, clearest reading of the Bible is always 
the most accurate. What does the Bible say? Then that's probably what it means. But you get into this uh, world sometimes when you've been in church for a long time where you're always looking for the under meaning, the, the more allegorical meaning for your life. And sometimes God's just like, I said it. And that's what I meant. I said it. And that's what I meant. I want you to think about me as remembering. That's how I want you to think about me. Does God forget us? No. But he will let us go through times of loneliness or desert to teach us patience. He will, after this time, he will turn his attention back to us again which is the definition we want to plug in there for God remembered Noah. God turned his attention back to Noah. I can vividly remember times in my life that were very dark, and I'm sure that you can too. I watched uh, the movie Facing the Giants this week with my kids, and it was awesome. I love that movie. It's, it's, a, it's a Christian movie about this football coach and his, his life, and he goes through. It seems like everything is going wrong in his life. And he asks these questions and he says, God, where are you? I love that movie and it ends awesome. And I'm not going to spoil it for you because you should totally watch it. Make you cry. It's awesome. But in that, he, he says, where are you, God? And as I watched that movie this week, it brought me back to the first time that I watched it, which I was going through a divorce. If you didn't know, I was married when I was uh, 21 years old. And I got married to a girl at Bible college, and, and I have a, my whole testimony is on our website, and I really encourage you to watch it because it'll let you know a lot about who I am. But during that time, she made a decision to not walk with the Lord anymore, to, that she didn't want to be a Christian anymore, and she left. And I was alone. And I was brokenhearted. I was devastated. All I wanted to do, my dad's a pastor. I thought getting a divorce meant I was never going to be used by God again. I thought it was, I, I, I was very guilty. I was very sad. I thought nothing in my life was ever going to get fixed. I was on a boat in the middle of an ocean of despair. And I remember watching that movie, Facing the Giants, and when he questioned God and he said, God, where are you? I remember breaking down in tears on my floor on my knees and weeping and saying, God, where are you in my life? And as the end of the movie comes through and, and it turns out that, that God does come through for him in a miraculous way in many different ways, I remember weeping even harder and saying, God, when are you going to come through for me? How is this going to happen? There were nights when I wondered where God, if God heard me. Many mornings I woke up hoping everything was fixed, but my first breath hit me like a thousand knives in my heart. Things weren't better. In fact, they were worse most mornings. Always worse. Where was God? Why was he silent? Why wasn't he responding to my prayers and my cries? Did he see me? Did he see how much I was hurting? Did he see how hard I had tried to please him? to fix my marriage. My heart wondered every single one of these questions. And even though I never told anyone I was questioning everything, I was. I never explained to people how deeply I was questioning God. But every day, Jesus would meet with me. He still does. And he would lead me. He would lead me to many different scriptures because I didn't abandon the Lord. I sought the Lord with all my heart. I would open up the word mostly to the book of Psalms because that's really what spoke to me during that time. And I would, I would weep and I would say, that's what I want, God. I want that. And Jesus would bring me to different parts in his word by his Holy Spirit. And he would slowly answer my questions. He did. He answered my questions. And if you ask me today to tell you every single one of the lessons that I learned or, or the answers that I received, I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't give them to you. But the reality of each one of them is written on my heart and read by everyone who observed me trust in the Lord. 
It was like a garden that God was planting in my heart, a garden of his own faithfulness, growing ever steadily as I remained in him. And I can promise you, it wasn't because I was faithful. It wasn't because of me trying hard to be something for God. It was God using his word. He planted in me faithfulness. He planted in me a a heart of compassion and patience. It certainly was not from me. It was not sourced from me. It was his garden with his fruits produced for his enjoyment. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have his perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Charles Swindoll said, True patience is waiting without worrying. So is that what Noah was doing? Was he waiting without worrying? I think so. Because God is going to remember you. The thing you're going through, the the desert that you're in, the boat in the midst of the sea of tribulation that you are floating in, and it seems like there's no direction, that time is going to come to an end. God will change the way that your life is going. But the work in the heart always precedes the work in your circumstances. God wants our heart to love him and serve him in the situation we're at and then watch for his hand to change that situation in due time. That's how God works. Well, I don't like that. I think God should do it a different way. Tough. He's God. He knows how to raise good kids. He's the best father in history. He knows what he's doing. We have to stop looking for our lives to change and be content with our hearts changing. But you don't know what I'm going through. You're right. I don't know what you're going through. But God does. And he's put you there for a reason. He's brought those things into your life for a reason. And that reason is is so that your heart can be changed by his love. And when it does, when it is, then there's not as much need for that that trial to be in your life. So you have a sucky job. Sorry. Seek how to glorify God in it, not how to get out of it. Your marriage is broken. Oh, that's lame. But honor God by seeking his strength and his heart of compassion for your spouse. And watch what happens. God will remember you just like he remembered Noah. He sees when you cry at night. He's not trying to destroy you. He is simply building you. None of these things in your life are because he's trying to destroy you. As 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 5 tells us, it says, coming to him as, a, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. He says, he's making you into a house, which speaks of a dwelling place, somewhere that he's comfortable sitting on the couch and reclining. That's what He's making your heart into a place where he's comfortable. He's developing you into a priesthood. People that can serve him, able to please God. He's the one doing these things in us. That's really what it's all about, pleasing God. That's what being a Christian is about. Finally being able to please God. It's not about how comfortable we are. That's not why we become Christians. It's not why we submit to the Lord. No. It's not about how popular you can get or how easy your lives and your marriages go. It's not about how well things are progressing in your plan, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your plan towards retirement. 
It's not about how big your ministry is. It's not about the nice things people say about you. It's only about pleasing God. And you can please God in a bad marriage. And you can please job God in a terrible job. You can. That's why this works. How are we built up, Peter tells us? How does this life that pleases God get developed in us? He said by, by three words, coming to him. Not trying harder. Not doing your devotions a million hours a day. Not giving up everything in the world for him. No, it's coming to him. It's just turning our heart towards him and coming to him and saying, God, I can't do it. And God says, if you just come to me, I'll give you a list of 10 things to do and then you could do it. No, that's not what he says. Never does he give that. He says, you come to me and I will do the building in your heart, in your life. You just come to me. That's how free it is. Is there anyone that cannot come to God? No. Everyone can come to God. The worst person in the world is one step away from just coming to God. There are literally no requirements. It is no effort. It is a turn of the heart. We call it repentance. We call it submission. We call it surrender. All these terms are all the same thing, which Peter says is just coming to him. And then he does the building process. Not coming to church. That doesn't fix you up. Helpful, but it doesn't fix you. Not reading your Bible. Helpful, but that doesn't fix you. Not trying harder, not keeping rules. It's coming to him, a personal relationship with God. That's why he says, I give my grace, this power, this working in your life, I give it to the humble. And you access it by faith. Those two relational realities speak of us having an interaction with God, not based on rules, but based on humility and faith. So freeing, so awesome for us. We just come to him and he decides how to grow a garden in our hearts of his love and his compassion. His own special character and demeanor reproduced in the heart of his disciple. That's what God is doing. That's why you're in a boat that's in the middle of a sea that's turbulent and you're getting seasick. That's why. Because God loves you. But it says here, God sent a wind to make the waters go away. He sent a wind. When Noah looked around his boat, he goes to this side, just water. Goes to this side, still just water. I bet he was getting kind of sick of that water. And he saw no solution to his problems. He saw no thing that he could do to fix this situation on his own. He was just there. There's nothing he could do about it. Maybe you look around your life, your situations, and you're like, I don't even see how this can get fixed. I don't even see. But here's the great thing. God sent a wind to make the waters go away. God can fix any problem. It's not a problem to him. So if he's not fixing your problem right now, it's because he's more interested in something else, getting something else accomplished in your life. He's not ignoring you. He's building inside and visibly. He's developing you. And the number one thing he's developing in you is your faith or your trust. So that's what he's doing. But then he can send a wind to make the waters go away. And wind in Hebrew is the word ruach. Everyone say ruach. It sounds like you all just coughed or cleared your throat or something. It's a very difficult word to say, but I have you say it because it's a very important Hebrew word. It's the word for wind, but it's also the word for, anyone know? Spirit. Spirit. You got it, Rhea. Good job. She's <laughs> like, yes. The spirit. The answer to our problems is always spiritual. That's why God sent a wind. An invisible God sends out an invisible power and invisible solutions to our real-world flesh and blood problems. That's what it means. Don't look for how you can fix it in your own efforts. That's the flesh. 
When we do things in the flesh, it never fixes anything. But when we wait for God, when we ask for his wind, his spirit, to come and affect the situation spiritually, it always leads to a fix. Believing in spiritual realities we can't see, that's how to live a Christian life depending on those things. The world is developing and shoving down our throat the idea that if you can't prove something in a laboratory, then it doesn't exist. Or it isn't as important as those things that you can see in a laboratory or you can prove. And that whole philosophy, which is in nearly every college in America right now, can be easily defeated when recognizing that it's a philosophy which is an idea, which is invisible and can't be proven in a laboratory, which means it's self-defeating and it's an impossible position to stand on. No, spiritual world is real. Spiritual, spirituality is provable and existent. And our morals and our philosophies prove it. It's where our Savior, Jesus, reigns as the unchallenged king and rule over all, and, every, and we have right to everything that he has as his sons. It's such an awesome reality. And if there's ever an issue in your life that's a physical and needs to be fixed, that help will come from a spiritual source, not a physical one. And here's what happens in our hearts and in our minds, okay? We get to thinking, what can I do to make this better? Whatever the problem is, maybe the problem's in your own heart, and you're like, what can I do to fix my lust or fix my greed or fix my hatred or my anger or my impatience? We think in our mind, what can I do? <clears throat> and we can't think that way. The Bible never tells you to fix yourself. It says, come to him, ask him for an invisible, spiritual fix. But we live in America, and that seems wacky to us, because our culture has raised up this idea that if you can't see it, then it's not real or it's not as important. It's metaphysical. It's bizarre. It's only the weirdos that think that there's an invisible power, anything invisible. That's sci-fi. Yet God says, you got to believe it. Real fixes only come from the Spirit. And Jesus said that he would give the Spirit, this invisible wind, to whoever asked him. The Holy Spirit, the full embodiment of spiritual power and fitness, could be described as the Holy Spirit. And he is fully given to us for free when we humble ourselves and ask for him. That's what God says. That's God's promise to us. I will give you a spiritual fix. I will bless you invisibly. So we get now to verse 2. We've gone through a whole verse. You ready? <laughs> we're going to get through two chapters today. I promise you it's going to happen, but we're going faster now. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the waters uh, decreased. And the ark rested on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. This is a very interesting verse. So the waters start going down. God's spiritual work is working, but we see it as a wind, all right? But it says in verse 4 that the ark rested on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. This is absolutely crazy and so important that God gives us the date, all right? Do you guys know this? Jesus, we've seen so many illustrations and foreshadows of Jesus already in the book of Genesis, haven't we? We've seen how he was foreshadowed in, in the garden, and he was foreshadowed with Cain and, and with Enoch, and we've seen so many things with Jesus being foreshadowed, but this is a great one. Jesus was crucified on the second month on the 14th day of the month. And so, in your mind, you can do the math. He was resurrected on the second month, on the 17th day of the month, which is the exact day that the ark rested. And so what does that, what does that mean to us? Well, it's amazing. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we are told that that's what gives us rest. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear, lest any man, or since there's a rest of God, a promised rest of God, let us fear, lest any man seem to come short of it. He's saying there's a rest for the people of God. There's a rest that this Christian life should not be about striving in your efforts, but it should be about resting in the finished work of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so as we rest in that, our whole life can be overtaken by this rest. And the ark resting on the mountain, ceasing from its floating or whatever, it it's pictures for us this rest that happened, that was accomplished for us on the day that Jesus was resurrected. That new life. It's so exciting. It's so neat to see how the new life that Jesus obtained on that day is the exact same life that he offers to you and to me as a restful experience. No longer is our life supposed to be sourced in our own life, in our own efforts, in our own abilities, and how good you can perform, but no, it's simply resting in what he did and his resurrection power, his resurrection life that happened on the second month, on the 17th day of that month, it will flow into you as we ask him, as we abide in him. That's what happens in such a great picture for us. So we get to verse 5, and it says, And the waters decrease continually until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark uh, which he had made. And he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. And the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 600th year and first year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing, and all flesh with his which, with his which, which is with you birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so they may, uh, so that they may abound on the earth and may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives, his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal and every creeping thing and every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. So he sends out the raven. He sends out the dove. There's a neat lesson in there. You can explore it yourself about our flesh and our spirit. Ravens always signify evil and, and Satan and, and dove sp sp uh, spirituality. And you can kind of take a look at that and the, and the illustration that God might be uh, showing us about both of those going out. But they get, they get out of the ark. God says, go on. You're done. We're done with this. And so what's the first thing Noah does? He offers a sacrifice. And he only had seven of each of these birds. Yet he sacrifices some of them to God to praise him. And this isn't trying to earn favor with God. God has already saved him. This is because he loves the Lord and he trusts the Lord with everything. If God saved him through a global flood, would he let him perish from hunger after he got off the boat? And Noah's mind isn't on the resources he has, but it's on the relationship with God. See, Noah only had seven of each of these types, and he offers some to the Lord. I mean, if you were smart, I would think, you would keep as many, resor as many resources as possible so that you could make it through the upcoming days and weeks and years when the world has not yet grown 
fruit and it hasn't come to maturity yet. And so Noah, though, he doesn't care about that. He cares more about saying thank you to God. He cares more about his heart being right with God. So he sacrifices something that, that stretches his resources. He gives till it hurts, we've said. Why? Because that will grow his trust in God. It will put a, a, a foot on the throat of his flesh, Noah's real enemy. That voice he constantly heard in his head that an invisible God is not important, it's not real, it's not enough. It's the same thing my flesh yells at me daily. You don't need to be that spiritual. You don't need Jesus that much. You're going to be a weirdo. That's what my flesh tells me all the time. But when Noah said, no, I'm going to offer to the Lord a sacrifice, he puts his foot on the throat of that flesh, and he, he keeps it from having influence or sway in his life. Say, no, I care about God more. Just like David did. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, um, the king said, uh, the king David said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In this situation, David was wanting to, to thank the Lord and praise the Lord for saving him. And so he came to this guy and said, I want to buy these, this threshing floor and these oxen. And the guy's like, hey, you're my king. I'll just give it to you. And David's like, no, I will buy it from you. David didn't care about the money. He didn't care about the field. He cared about his own heart. He took those big old boots of the Spirit and he crushed the windpipe of that rebellious flesh and its desire to be taken care of and safe and rich. That's what David was doing. He cared more about his spiritual life. It might have been nice to not have to pay, to have the extra money. Maybe he could have fed the poor or something. Which brings us to another story. In, in Mark chapter 14, verse 3 through 10, it says this, In being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table, and a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But they, there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and wherever you wish you may, whatever you wish you may do for them, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him. She did a good work because she poured out her love in the form of something valuable. She didn't give in to the desire of her flesh to save the alabaster jar, to use it on something that really mattered. No, she believed in an invisible thing called love. And she loved Jesus. And so she poured this oil onto his head, showing that it had an invisible attribute. She attached the invisible attribute of love to this oil. Oil is just oil. If Judas poured oil on Jesus, do you think he would have cared? He'd be like, dude, you're gross. Get away from me. But she does it, and it's totally different. Why? Because she has faith in the invisible. Because she had love. Something that truly, truly mattered. And Jesus says, that's awesome. She gets it. Your love for God is the opposite of your flesh and everything it desires. So the solution for life is not getting your flesh to try to please God, but to die for your, to your flesh and to fall in love with God. That is the way we live this Christian life. If you hear anything from our Bible studies, from worship, from coming to church, hear this, fall in love with God. 
It's the only way. It's the only way. Love. It's invisible. It's weird to us not loving Americans. But it's the only way. We have to love God. And if you think, I don't love God, how do I fall in love with God? Come to church. Observe God's people. Read the word. And most of all, speak with him. Have a conversation with him. Sit at his feet like this woman. And you'll find that you'll grow in love with him. So we get to verse 22, 21. And it says, where am I at? And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So here we have God's promise. God was so affected by this relationship he had with Noah that he declares his intentions to keep working in the lives of men and to not give up on us. God's commitment to continue to provide for our needs, to not destroy everyone for the sakes of those who have a relationship with him. We please God when we say, I just love you, God. I just love you. It pleases him so much and reminds him of this day when Noah said that. And then he mentions, you know, cold and winter. We have an ice age on its way. There's a lot of really great science you can look at, look at in there. It's not going to be tropical all the time anymore. And then you have, we get into chapter 9. It says, so God blessed Noah and his sons. And, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And they, were, and they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, uh, well, we'll pause right there. So, God gives Noah some directions. He says, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, but things are going to be a little different, Noah. First of all, the animals are all going to be scared to death of you. So I guess before the flood, lions you could have as pets, which is great. You could send your kids out to go play with the cobras, which is awesome. But now they are literally scared to death of us. They're afraid of us. And uh, then the greatest thing I see in these verses is that God invents the barbecue. Amen. Such a big deal. <laughs> um, so obviously he says you can eat now. So vegetarians are in sin. And no, I'm just kidding. You're not in sin if you're vegetarian. I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, but it is a special grace in a way that God provides for us and shows us that he loves for us. Because the world is going to be different. It's not going to be as fruitful. Before they had huge fruit. It's very tropical. Now the world is barren and, and it's going to be tough for us. So uh, he, he says you can eat the animals, which is great for us. Then we get to verse 5, which says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, and from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of a man. For the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So God here, he institutes capital punishment. He gives man the responsibility of carrying out capital punishment. And the crazy thing is, the world has us all twisted around. Because he's not decreasing the value of human life. No, no, no. God is increasing the value of human life. And he's saying it's so vitally important human life is that there is going to be a severe penalty if you take it. I decide when people live. I decide when people die. You shouldn't have, you don't have that right. And so he gives a, 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 a he increases the value of it. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. It, it might have been easier to live a selfish life, uh, that, but God wants them employed with the task of raising lots of kids. And it's hard work to raise kids right. It's tough. It's a ministry to the world, though, producing godly people in this world. That's how we should see it. Even if we never lead a person to Christ, you can at least raise your children to love and know him. Uh, Psalm 127 speaks of our, 
our children being like arrows that we send out into the world. And I love that, that illustration. Verse 9. It says, and as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living thing, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, that I, thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign that, of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that a rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look to it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh on the earth. You see, God didn't believe that he did something wrong or harsh or too harsh in the flood. He wasn't like, whoops, sorry, didn't mean to kill everyone. No. He did it on purpose. He made a promise because he did things in the post-flood post world to guarantee that the exact evil conditions of the pre-flood world would never be precisely dupl duplicated. These things included the imprisonment of the angels who sinned with human women. We read that in Jude 6. The shortening of the lifespan of men. And then we'll see in a little while the dividing of languages. And these things safeguarded humanity from becoming as completely turned over to evil as they did before the flood. See, God gave them incredible freedom before the flood. And now he's helping them out a little bit. And you might think, oh, it's such a restriction, you know, that, ah, you know, we only live 120 years anymore, 100 years, you know. That's, that's such a restriction or all the different languages. But really... It's God working with you and protecting you. We'll, we'll learn more about that as we get to the Tower of Babel. So when we see a rainbow, we remember that God keeps his promises. And his promise is that he loves you. And it's really interesting. We look in Isaiah chapter 54, and we're getting very close to the end. You guys have been very patient today. But we've got to read this last verse. It says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. The kindness of the Lord is more certain, it says, than the mountains and the hills, and his covenant of peace is more sure. In other words, his love never fails. The rainbow is there when we see it to remind us of God's love. That's what Isaiah teaches us. Verse 18, Now the sons of Noah went out of the ark with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what the younger son had done to him and said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and may the Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So Noah gets off the ark. He's like, I'm going to be a farmer. This, I'm tired of the sea. I'm certainly not going to go be a fisher. So, I'm, and forget raising cattle. I'm going to grow a plant. It's about my speed right now. So he starts to grow a vineyard. He gets drunk, which is just dumb. Noah, why are you doing this? 
You know, we could read from the Proverbs. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by these is not wise. Who has sorrow? Who has woe? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at wine and those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red as it sparkles in the cup, as it swirls around smoothly. The last, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. So Noah kind of fizzles out at the end, right? He makes a mistake. He gets drunk. But God still loves him. God still loves him. We'll talk a little bit about the whole issue with his, his sons next week. But what we got to remember is that his grace never fails. His love draws us back like Noah. His kindness leads us to repentance. Noah's failure does not negate the faithfulness of God's love. Because after Noah was drunk, the next day I'm sure there was a rainbow. And every day since, there's been a rainbow in the world. Every day, even with all the terrible things people are doing, God's love never fails. We can come back to him in humility and faith, and act, in an act called repentance, and that sin has no power over us anymore. So just remember Noah, he messed up, but God loved him and still loves him, and it did not change his promise. That's why we're promised people, we're promised believers. That's the kind of Christians we are. So let's all stand up. I know we tackled quite a lot of topics today, and Might have felt like a three-hour tour. <laughs> but the end is that God loves you. God has an amazing plan for your life. And he, he is desiring to work in your life, even though right now you feel like you might be in a desert or in a boat, in a sea that has no end. Father, we come to you. We lift our eyes to you. God, we need you so much. God, we're going to sing this last song, and I pray that it would be such a deep reality in our hearts. God, that we would be anchored to your love. Lord, I don't know if Noah's Ark had an anchor. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but it's a common idea. It's something we're familiar with, that we don't drift away. And Father, we cannot let ourselves drift away from your love. And Lord, we all mess up. We all fail. Some of us get drunk, some of us do other things, but each one of us is led astray by our own evil hearts. But God, so, you know, sometimes we send out that raven. Sometimes we send it out there and we just see, ah, maybe the flesh will get this done. But God, I pray that we would come back to you and come back to your spirit. And I pray, God, that we remember your love and that that would be what anchors us to you, God. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who is sick and tired of running from you. It seems like no matter what direction they run or no matter what they run from, it's always you and they are like stuck in the mud and they, and they can't get out. Like running in a dream when you can't get anywhere. And Lord God, I pray that every single one of us in here would turn our hearts completely to you, Jesus would repent of our way of doing things and would say, your word is enough for me. Your grace is enough for me. I need you, God. And if that's you, I just pray specifically for you that you would turn to the Lord with all your heart. God, we need you. Every single, every single one of us needs you so much. In your name we pray, amen.